Welcome to Smiley's. Today we're joined uh, by a very special guest, which I think needs no introduction, but uh, if you'd like, Nif, to introduce yourself. Hey folks, I go by the username of Niffelfrog on Reddit, Discord, YouTube, and I don't know which other platform, and I like talking about Molasson, and for some reason people like what I have to say sometimes, part of the time. Yeah, that's a great intro, Nif. Welcome to the show. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Really fun. Of course. So in general, today, the idea is to talk about uh, Ian Seattleman's writing until Stonewielder, because Mora's not read any further. But uh, knowing me and uh, Mora, and probably Nif, we're probably going to diverge from that topic fairly quickly. So bear with us. Without a doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we get any further, since you're the first uh, time reader, Mora, would you like to share your thoughts before we do? About Esselmont's writing in general? Uh, any topic you like. In this particular case, since we're not going to be sticking to any particular. I know I'm the, the, you know, the, the, I'm not the host, but I think it will be nice for you to describe how do you think Esselmont is transforming or developing as a writer from the Night of Knives to Stonewilder. Yeah. See, uh, when I started reading, right, like two, two and a half years back, uh, and even now, I think the general recommendation in the sub is to read the, the main 10, quote-unquote main 10, and keep Esselmont for when you do the reread, you can just mix up the books together or something like that. I believe Lee and a few others have uh, somehow uh, done the, you know, the publication order of all the books mingled together. And, you know, uh, now that I'm reading these books, I think I have missed out. <laughs> I, I should have added these books because... I think by House of Chains, by Midnight Tides, I, I was sure I loved these books, isn't it? So I really don't know why I had to keep uh, Esselmont books for a separate reading or, you know, for a reread or something. It should have been added on and, you know, it adds so much more to that world, to that history, to all the world building that Cam does. It's, it's really amazing. Uh, but yeah, the thing is, I read Night of Knives, I think at the end of uh, Cripple God, which is something I wouldn't recommend to anyone. Because, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a completely different voice, a completely different setting. And at the end of Cripple God, that is not the type of book you want to pick up. So I bounced out of it. I, like, I just finished it, but I didn't get much out of that book. It's only the reread which, you know, really opened my eyes. And I thought, yeah, th this is an amazing book. And, you know, Cam is such an excellent writer, even for his, you know, for that was his first book. Or probably written was the first book. I'm not sure. So I think it was the first published First yeah. published one, yeah. But I think Return was the one he wrote first. Something, yeah. So yeah, I think a version of Return of the Crimson Guard was written, but yeah, I'm not sure it's the one that was published ultimately. I think I he think had the rumor to... is that it was like double the size. They had a lot more. <laughs> I think Calor <laughs> featured a lot more prominently. Like he talked to everybody, and then he eventually got everyone except for Traveler. Wait, like the that. published book is half the size of what he wrote. Yes, yes. Return of the Crimson Guard oh. was a lot bigger. Oh. <laughs> You you know Malasan is <laughs> Malasan is full of that kind of things like like you know the gardens was initially supposed to be a script yeah for a movie and uh, yeah. which which means that it should be possible to have Esselman and Ericsson analyze gardens and like highlight it and say look this part of the book was transformed from an earlier version that essentially Cam was the one doing the writing. Because it was a script. So this was inspired yeah. by something that Cam wrote initially or like this part is in, it was in a tabletop game where Cam was doing the DM. So a lot of the stuff that happens is like Cam is the one that knows the one that was DMing. 
no but a return itself i've been telling people that it would have been great as a as a trilogy you know just return could have been split into three separate books because there is so much going on and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, i don't know it was a little tough uh, to to follow at least initially and i was making notes and that's the only reason i could keep things straight but you know overall it was really enjoyable uh, how did you read these books anif eselmon books did you uh, combine them with the yeah uh, i am a proponent of reading the book of the fun first and then the novels of the empire and then whatever you want if it can be carcanas or the new stuff that is coming out or the the other trilogy of esel which i am now reading and oh, why is that yeah uh, i'm halfway through a dancer's lament mm-hmm. um so so i read them like that when and, and it's, there's a very specific re- uh, rationale for that um the book of the fallen takes a lot of effort and focus i'm a very slow reader i ruminate a lot about what i read i almost never like speed read i just can't <laughs> besides uh, english is not my native language so i kind of struggle with <laughs> with with speed reading but i don't even do it in spanish which is my native language so that's the first thing the second thing is that i think books are more than just the plot and the world building and all that i think there are things that a book tries to say and that is done about um that is done with the tone with the way things are written and with the progression that is done within a given subseries so my my concern was that if i started introducing the books of the Fasselmont of the novels of the Malaysian Empire it will be difficult because there are changes in tone i will be open opening new uh, plot lines with their own thematic explorations i will be mixing themes i will be mixing the two evolu- the, the evolutions of the two authors i just decided to try to uh, and and you know on reddit people reassure like yeah you can read the book of the fallen first and then come for us and i did it like that and i found out that yeah actually i think people don't give eselman to, to not everybody but a lot of people back in the day didn't give eselman the credit he deserves because uh, then in my opinion the novels of the malasan empire are not just a supplement to the book of the fallen they have uh, eselman has uh, an arc that binds more or less the, the six novels there is a narrative there are things that are said at the grander scale in this series just like the book of the fallen so it will be read in its own terms and not in this constant comparison with the book of the fallen that's why i proposed that that people do it like i did like first the book of the fallen and then the novels and then whatever you want yeah so what uh, since we brought up uh, past tendency one thing i noticed that is common to both the book of the fallen and the novels but not past tendency is they're very uh, history from below esque you know history of the masses it's not about well, take path ascendancy which is very great men of history approach which is to say you follow dancer you follow kelvin you follow the big names that crafted the empire and then contrast that to knight of knives to which you see the assassinations but you don't see them from dancer's perspective or shirley's perspective you see it from kiska who doesn't know what's going on or temper who thinks this is about him and <laughs> i think that's great because it fits the theme of the book of the fallen also while also serving its own narrative plot so the overarching themes that tackle the entire novels one theme i personally singled out is grief and very specifically the grief of one very specific group of people and even more specifically one character 
I can't get further into this. This is a uh, subject of a future essay I might write eventually, but uh, I never got around to doing it. <laughs> and I think, I think it's a, uh, you'll see, it's not so prevalent here. It's more prevalent in the latter half of the books. Okay. Yeah. Cash, cash, cash. Let me just put it like this. Who yeah. is the character when you are in grief? What other characteristic comes to mind? I think of Traveler. Okay. No, it's not Traveler. Traveler is definitely uh, one of them. Yeah, I'm not thinking of Traveler here, but yes, Traveler definitely fits. I can't confirm nor deny because it will be a spoiler. <laughs> no, because you both went quiet, so I'm sure it's not Traveler, <laughs> but it's okay. Let's find out. I'm, I've only told this to one other person and they didn't actually figure out what I'm, who I mean. Even after finishing essay, uh, they asked, who did you actually mean? Oh, yeah, it makes sense. So I'm not sure if Nef is actually me, the same person, but... Is it possum by any... I... Possum... Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, possum I think I'm not, going to keep ap- guessing. Possum doesn't appear enough to warrant that um, description. But yes, possum is also in grief after Lucene dies. Uh, so... Then it's Kiska. Uh, that, was actually the, that was actually Ro's guess, yes. When I told Ro about this, his first guess was Kiska. You'll see. You can't know now because the character hasn't appeared enough to know. Okay. So um, I thought that was very interesting when he wanted on the right path, path ascendancy, which is just, okay, we follow these guys that are big names and you know of them. Instead, even return, right? You see Possum, who's Clawmaster, but before that, he was just a no-name Claw that tried to kill Dazim and failed. Uh, you see Nate, who is literally a nobody. You see Kyle, who is a slave that was purchased and then get to see the guard through his eyes. You see, and so on and so forth. You never get to see any big names. You don't see through Lassine's eyes. You don't see through Urka's eyes very much. You don't see through Traveler's eyes. You don't see through Malik, for example, very much. It's very bottom-focused. And because of that, the threat narrative framing of the story of, holy shit, the Crimson Guard's returning, and there's a civil war going on, is very focused, much more beyond what you would see from this huge novel that spans so many things. Because even when everything is going on, you're still grounded in a single perspective because that perspective is only concerned with one very specific thing at that point in time which more often than not is survive so that's one thing i think cam does very well despite the fact that his novels his early novels are very expansive in volume i think one book that does this also fairly well is the bone hunters which is just massive it's like three novels in one and it still manages to ground you in one perspective i like i like how erickson puts it like yeah, Von Hunters is basically two novels put together. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I will say it's two novels and a short story put together. Like, there is a chapter <laughs> you could cut from the book and, number one, publish it as a short story, and number two, make a movie about that chapter alone, and it will be a good movie yeah. with minimal editing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that could be like a one-shot scene, isn't it? The whole that whole chapter. Yeah, I mean, two chapters fit that bill. Both chapters seven and twenty-three fit that bill. I don't know what is twenty-three now. Oh, uh, the Malad city is fighting, you know. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. The meeting with the emperor. Yeah, you have the... yeah. That could easily also be made the short story. It'd be great. You have that one, but you also have the. the it's there. There's this chapter that is before. Yeah, before there's a chapter in I think Reaper Scale or the Cripple Code, which is longer. Bit by word count, I think it's chapter 13 or 12 or 6, which is the longest chapter in the series. And it's basically, I think that chapter is longer than many, than many quote-unquote books. <laughs> okay. So that's like a 100-page chapter, isn't it? Chapter 7. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a novella. It's not a short story. 
<laughs> ah, you know, these Canadian guys, they, they make everything in epic proportions. Like, you're going to make a series. It can be a trilogy. It has to be 10 books. But wait, there is more. It's not really a 10-book series. In the grand stream of things, the main series is 16 books. Uh, you know, this has to be 5 million words. No, wait, 7, things like that. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Lee, you were, you were talking. No, yeah. no, no, I'm mostly done. I think, um, well, if we're talking about thematic exploration, I think Cam is very subtle. So you may have heard me bitch a lot about uh, Midnight Tides, Laura. Oh, um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think Stonewielder does what Midnight Tides and to an extent Reaper Scale do, but better. See, I have regard. a theory. Can I just tell you my theory about Midnight yes, Tides and then we'll get back to Wrestlemon. All these letter, letteras um, uh, parts, which you hate, I think the it's all told by T-Hole. That's all. It has to be because, you know, the rest of Midnight Tides is uh, Trull Singer and these parts are from T-Hole's perspective and that's why the humor is, you know, that juvenile. So, <clears throat> that's my theory. Let's get back to Wrestlemon. Right. So, um... One thing that Minotids does is this exploration of, uh, you know, cultural imperialism and colonialism, which is later picked up in Reaper Scale with the All, and I think it's done very well there. And then you have Stonewielder, who's like, the Corelli are the invaders, but not the invaders, you know? You have, the one of the first lines in the prologue from uh, Jevon is, there are invaders and there are invaders. And the whole book is then structured by viewing uh, the Corelli from, you know, Bakun's perspective or Hiam's perspective as these... Well, we always lived here. This was the land of our forefathers. It's always been like this. Yeah. And never do you get someone like Garen in Midnight Tides. It's like a mustache-twirling villain. Yes, I'm going to kill all the low-life scum. <laughs> it's, it feels more subtle. It feels better. I don't know. It's a personal pet peeve, I'll admit. But I like it more this way. No, I think Return of the Crimson Guard does this uh, you know, pretty well about, you know, identity of who exactly is a Malazan and, you know, I think we discussed mm -hmm. this, isn't it? Like, what yes, makes a Malazan a Malazan as long, you know, at some point you're going to give up their I'm from Unta or I'm from Itkokan or Kontali and, you know, merge everything together to become one Malazan name. I remember back yeah. in the day that people made an observation that was, like, really interesting about all this. But back then I hadn't finished the series. But I always found the post really interesting. And it was like, wait, you have this gigantic Quantali continent. Why did the family choose to forge a national identity around this small island <laughs> that is off the coast? <laughs> Why Malassans? Why not the Canese Empire, the Shakatakan Empire, the Quantalian Empire, the Hengis Empire? Why Malassan? Why? Was there an answer? Makes you anything? Think. Was there any? Uh, no. Some people made. I think it's just branding. So yeah, some people made some comments along those lines that it was probably historic because that's where Canavet uh, and, and the and the group made their base of operation, and so basically it just they just inherited that identity from there. But it's still weird. Like small island manages to control the entire continent, but still any one part of the continent is more powerful. <laughs> that that one island. It's curious, really. You know, it's isn't it extremely similar to what Britain did? One island somewhere far off with the same British Empire name, you know, spread throughout the world. Yeah, but what I would argue is that the people from the colonial territories of the, the British didn't really have British identity for the most part. 
Yeah. It's it's like Britain had its own identity and they were very clearly colonizing. But in in Malassan with with the Malassan Empire, it had there's something different. I don't I don't know quite how to describe it. It's like these groups these groups are are, are just quite integrated into the idea of the empire. I think this is a very uh, similar case to Rome and Byzantium, which Rome for the vast majority of its early existence was just a city on a hill, right? For <laughs> like until what, like 400, 300 BCE, it was just Rome and nothing else. It took them centuries to just take Italy. It took them even more centuries to spread out from there. And they never changed the name. It was still Rome. And even when other urban centers of the empire, like say in this case, Unta or Tali or whatever, became more developed. Yes, Rome was still the capital and it reflected it, unlike Palat City, which looked like a shithole, <laughs> now that Unta is the capital especially, <laughs> but it still remains the cultural, which I brought, I brought this up, I think, in the Grimmsgard episode, there is no singular Malazan culture because Malazal was just a place for farmers and pirates and fishermen and not much else. So that, or it's a Byzantium case, which is just, they all call themselves Italian, and then to distinguish themselves from the historians, to distinguish the Malazans from the Italians later, just call them Malazans, even though the Malazans never actually called themselves Malazans. This is getting confusing. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. My guess is, it's a Rome situation, because it's based on, it's very much based on Rome, so they just uh, consider themselves Malazan, because Malazan basically transcended the notion of I'm from Malaz City or Malaz Isle to something greater. Now, why the name stuck is beyond me. <laughs> I mean, who knows? History is full of that kind of mystery. Like, Yeah. No, it's just, you know, Kellen was deciding that he's not going to bother with a, you know, a newer name or anything. Probably. <laughs> Sounds very much like him, yes. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, already, can I just add uh, yeah. one point to Selman's writing, uh, which Niff brought up that, you know, the tone changes and all that. Can I say, Niff, that even in the 10 books, don't doesn't the tone change widely between them? Like uh, House of Chains yeah. and Midnight Tides are completely, you know, it could be different authors. It's just the story is set in the same world. So I don't know, adding Selman wouldn't really take away much from, you know, it's not like a single voice telling all 10 books. It changes so much that probably adding these books in between wouldn't really take away much from the reading experience, I feel. Um, I can't make the experiment anymore because I already <laughs> read them. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree there is a lot of variation in what Ericsson does. And, and when I use the term tone, I hope AP Canavan is not listening to this. I'm referring to the general, the general vibes that you get on the book. So yeah, when you take yeah. Gardens of the Moon, where basically nothing... Uh, I mean, Gardens of the Moon is, for the most part, a, a PG-13 book. <laughs> yeah. And then you go to Dead House Gates, and the prologue itself is like plus 21. Yeah. It's like, yeah, is this the same guy? <laughs> like, even the one or two torture scenes in, in Gardens are just implied, like... This person was torturing this guy, and it was so bad that the assassin of the group was horrified. But it doesn't actually says what happened. <laughs> yeah, we see that and in. The... Uh, I think, yeah. <laughs> then you get like in in Dead House Gates, it's like uh, this guy sewing off the the head of an old woman with chains. Is like, damn, what happened? Oh God, yeah. 
Yeah. The, the whole prologue was, oh God. Speaking of, um, I think not, I think much of the same observation can be made of Ethel moments because Night of Knives isn't, well, I mean, Tempered just gets molded to high hell by a, a hound. His flashbacks have a, a very intense scene within uh, Uberid. Um, but for the most part, nothing horrible happens, you know? And then you have Return of the Crimson Garden, chapter one. There's that scene, which I'm not going to talk about at all, because that freaks me the fuck out. And, which uh, scene? Then which the, one? the execution in Unta. The, in Unta, oh, that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah that Perfect. one. Yeah. And then and there's uh, not that bad. Usu in Stonewheeler. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you have Stonewheeler, like, I think Esselman is a very accomplished horror writer. He incorporates yes, horror yes. elements like very, very well. Like, yes. Um, <laughs> the stuff that goes on in Stone Wilder and later in, I'll say, let's not that Blood hard, and Bone. In, yeah, in, it's okay. In Blood and Bone. Yeah, Blood and Bone and Stone Wilder. That's like some fine horror. Like, that's that, that, that was a nice addition. And uh, mm-hmm. I think he tones up the, the, the difficult, like the more mature themes, themes in him. As he progresses, but um, I'm not sure I'm with you about subtle about subtlety, with respect to Estelmon. I'm I don't know how I can make that comparison between the two. Oh yeah, I mean I think I think the kind of stuff that they are trying to be subtle about are very different between them. Yeah, yeah, I think on a case case basis maybe, but they tackle very different things, and sometimes subtlety shouldn't be used, especially you know in certain cases of sexual assault. You sometimes need to be very direct about this is bad and you should get it. Yeah. So I don't think it's an entirely fair comparison. It's just a pet peeve of mine when people say, oh, he's bad at writing in general and Nixon's better at everything. Like, oh, in certain regards, he's not. So. I think he's very accomplished in, well, I already said, incorporating horror. But also I feel like when I was reading these two series, what I was thinking was that you know, everybody has their favorite philosophers that they have read or read what other people say about them. And I feel like Esselmon and Erickson are two friends that each one has their own set of philosophers that they gravitate towards. So I, I always see these two series through the lens of these guys came together and shared these philosophical perspectives. And... I don't know. I always put Esselmon more on the side of the ex- existential philosophers, French philosophers mm-hmm. of existentialism, and maybe later a bit of um, postmodernism. But that that comment is more related to something he told me, a comment he made, and I was like, "Oh, so this guy knows about it." And then Erickson, I'm not sure. I, I can't quite put it, but I'm I'm sure that he has some elements of uh, Nietzsche in the Book of the Fallen, and. I always found that interplay really, really fun to to wait. When you say you have uh, everyone has their own, you know, favorite philosopher and things like that, you know, I I take an exception because I have not really looked much into philosophies. And uh, your Stonewiller uh, video was the one which you know made me even look up uh, what is existentialism and you know. So yeah, the problem with existentialism is that I grew up reading that stuff for school mm-hmm. for high school. What? So those are the folks have, that I know. Do they teach these things in high school? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, not not like a philosophy major would, but I had to read some of their, some of the essays they had written. And yeah, you know, I, I think I have some, a, a, I had a somewhat, uh, let's say, fucked up model of high school. <laughs> I did have, I, I did have classes of philosophy and we had to debate actual points. 
with one another. And same for theology and all that. So yeah, it was weird. I don't know. I mean, you make such excellent videos. So yeah, I think it all worked out. Oh, well. I don't know. I think we were just, uh, probably the names were mentioned maybe about ancient Indian Hindu philosophy and all. But I, I don't I don't have exposure to any of the Western philosophy ideas. I mean, as far as I understand, the, 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 the problem is that the, the Hindu canon is like gigantic with, yeah, with yeah. exploring ideas that people in the West discovered like literally hundreds of years after they had been already toyed with by, uh, by Hindu philosophers. Yeah, I still want to uh, live somewhere in the East, isn't it? I, I believe Thailand or yeah, Thailand, yes, Malaysia. Thailand. Yeah. And I think you also live in Japan sometimes. Is it? Okay. No, so there are some influences, like so many uh, like Indian names are, you know, part of the stories he writes, like Bala and Anand and all that. Ashok Regiment. So I really like uh, Eselmont's names because they have some relation to Indian names. I, I don't know if it is like intentional or... I, I know it's confirmed that the main, one of the main POVs in Blood and Bone is influenced by a name he learned in Thailand. So Really? So it's it is yeah saying is a uh, native to Thailand. I didn't know that was an actual name. So no. evidently it is intentional in part. I just don't know about the Indian names. Yeah, you're learning that <laughs> after talking to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't heard him deny it. You know. <laughs> well, the thing is that this these guys uh, they they pick up their names from very weird places, like the you know the oh god. This is so embarrassing. I don't. I can never remember which are the helms and which are the the, the swords. The gray folks, uh, the, the gray blades or helms. The ones uh, in uh, Capistan. Uh, gray swords, yes. The gray. folks of Itkovian yeah. swords. Okay, the gray swords because the other ones are helms, right? Yes. Yes. Cool. So I don't the know how many keeps all this great. Yeah. Sorry, I get confused too. <laughs> if you notice their names, to me they look like. Armenian names, yes, Armenian yes. Georgian names. Like, yeah, I in fact, until I listened to people talk about the series, I didn't say Itkovian, it was Itkovian, Itkovian. Uh, yeah. Bru yeah. Brukalian, oh. and uh, who, who is the other one? Tanakalian, eh, no, Tanakalian, Karnadas, and like in with the, with the same cadence that Armenians and Georgians pronounce their names. So when I hear people, no, Itkovian, and I'm like, what, really. <laughs> it's like it's like the historian like i hear i hear Erickson say like it's diker and i'm like you mean dewiker is diker how, how does Erickson say that he says diker and it's like it's dewiker uh, it's dewiker it has to be dewiker. I, yeah and i also hear that like karsa is apparently i don't know if i don't know if it is uh, romanian or hungarian but it's like it's an actual last name. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice to know that. I was shocked when, when they said that. I was like, really? Yeah. It's not actually touched upon the main thing we wanted to touch upon today, which I think is uh, the differences between Tolda Hounds and Orsha Patron in a non-spoilery manner-ish. As far as possible, it's okay. Oh, yeah. If the discussion goes uh, where it goes. Yeah. So I think what the, the, the setting of this issue is, number one, we know that the series was, for the most part, the, the world building was constructed during the tabletop games through RPG gaming. And so they will alternate 
um, you will have Ericsson being the DM of Esselmon's uh, characters, and then they will switch. And uh, Esselmon will be the DM for some of Ericsson's characters, but they will also play with some other folks from time to time. For instance, um, Kars Aordelong and Bottle were played by one of their friends, uh, Professor Paxton Marbray. He's like Karsa and Bottle. And then you have um, Esselmon's characters, among which you have um, Dathem and Kelamvet. And I think, um, I don't know which one is of the gang of uh, the Rogistan. So you have a, well, obviously Osir was uh, from, from Esselmon's uh, gang. And on the other hand, you have Anomander and Krop and I think Morelio, a couple more, that were Ericsson's characters. I think that when you analyze some parts of both series, each author describes the character of the other guy through the lens of, uh, you know, having to face that guy in the, total, in the RPG games. So you will see that in the Book of the Fallen, generally speaking, within the constraints of being like an ethical writer and interrogating the decisions of your characters, you still find the general tone around Anomander to be very sympathetic. And Osirk, for the most part, is an asshole, an entitled asshole. <laughs> Esselmon, on the other hand, yeah. paints Rake as an arrogant guy that thinks that he's better than everybody else. <laughs> and Osirk as conflicted, but for the most part, uh, an okay guy. And I think you have that interplay. So I find that interplay interesting in particularly in Told the Hounds, because in Told the Hounds you have Krupp, which is Ericsson's character, that is at one level narrating the, the, the entire novel, in some narrative level, let's say. And then you switch to Orceptor Throne, that is related to Told the Hounds in ways that are not really relevant for you, who uh, uh, <laughs> cash, I mean, okay. is not is not relevant to detail what those connections are, but if you read the blurb of the Orceptor Throne, you kind of guess what the connection is. At least they're taking place in the Rajasthan at more or less the same time frame. Not chronologically, okay. but not at the same time. Not synchro- not they're not uh, they're not concurrent, but they're very close in time. So on the one side, you have Krupp, which is Ericsson's character describing things, and then very soon you have Esselmon writing this or Sephiroth in the Rajasthan. And he has to portray crap. And if you compare both characters, it's clear they are the same person. But you can infer a layer of bias from the narrative perspective and think of it as one guy making fun of the other. Yeah. And I find that in, in these two books, it's like all over the place. Like even after Orceptor Throne comes out, I mean, you find the way in which Esselmon portrays um, crap. In one of the later novels, when you go to the dramatis persona, the description of Krupp is a round little man. Yeah. And to me, that reads like Ericsson making fun of Esselmon making fun of him. <laughs> the levels of irony in this out of charts. I realized when I started like uh, listening to interviews of both and reading the novels of the Melassan Empire, I realized how much they told to each other within the novels. It's insane. Hmm. No, the one yeah. thing which stood out to me, sorry, just Lee, uh, about the prologue, because that's the one thing I read, is how much uh, Esselmont stresses on uh, Krupp's height. 
he keeps telling that he is round he is small and he comes up to you know baruk sitting level on something <laughs> which i thought you know it has to be some in joke between them it has to be but but also but also like erickson is exactly my height okay cam is like 2 inches uh, taller <laughs> is that all because i've seen the uh, photo of the three of you and okay yeah I, uh, if you if you if you notice this- if you notice the way we are standing I'm standing with my feet together and I'm upright. Esmond okay. <laughs> is with his is with his with his feet apart and he's like like not squatting okay. but almost. <laughs> so you can see that Ericsson and I are essentially the same height and then Cam is like two inches taller. Yoke. Okay. No, but he but just thing, seems a lot lot more taller. Yeah. Yeah. He's so, if I may. Please, yeah. If I may bring the conversation back to what we're talking about, so uh, we've already brought up Krupp, but uh, another character that is very obviously written differently between series, and we've brought this up before, is Dancer, which Steve's character, Kellen Bedford's Ian's character, and you get no points for guessing who played Leoman. <laughs> who played Leoman, yeah. actually? So, do you mean uh, who? Cam did, obviously. Was it Cam? Really? Yeah, yeah. He was. It was his character during the Siege of Yucatan, the first one, oh, not damn. the second one. Yeah. Which. Leoman wasn't actually present in the books in that siege, but well, who cares? No, because Leoman in um, Stonewiller is like really nice. Like yes, know? exactly. I sort yeah, of his, forgave him. He's a, he's a misunderstood folk. He's a a poor guy trying to run away from the imperialist Malassans. While in in the book of the <laughs> Fallen, he's a he's a he's a a war criminal. Yeah, yeah. I think both authors frame him the same way. One just like. In House of Chains, maybe I think it is, or The House Gates, Haboric just basically flat out says that Leoman doesn't believe in anything. He's not a fanatic. He's not gonna die for you, and that's a bad thing. And then you have Stonewheelers like the Queen of Dreams is sending him with Kiska because precisely because he's not gonna be a fanatic <laughs> and kill Taishwin as a principle or whatever. So it's like yeah, two the same thing but portrayed differently, and I think it's really good. In, in the same vein, yeah, Dancer is absolutely bloodthirsty, not of knives, and they have the sweet shadow god is like, yeah, I'm gonna be your uncle now. Anyway, <laughs> carry on. Uh, yeah, Dancer is one that is well, but at least um, yeah, Steve does a great job humanizing Dancer in the later parts of the Book of the Fallen. But I find that uh, yeah, particularly in the Path to Ascendancy, I'm I'm sure it has to do with the fact that he's younger. But Dancer is very fucking arrogant. Like, damn. <laughs> he doesn't even <laughs> look like the same. I mean, I know it's the same character, but they're he's so arrogant. <laughs> the only character that I see that has this kind of special continuity among the two is Dasim. Like Dasim is the only mm-hmm. one that is cool and sad and serious and everywhere. <laughs> so to before we go back to us one thing i noticed um in my in my pet theories is that dancer is humanized precisely because of his position of sorry in gardens before that night of knives path ascendancy the flashbacks he's an arrogant bloodthirsty cool you know nonchalant dipshit yeah and he possesses sorry he's a patron of assassins what, what do you expect from dehas gets onward after he leaves sorry he realizes hang on i shouldn't be like this and part of that is probably because of Sorry's influence on him, and also panic and all that. But also, it's Steve's character, and Steve has a you know likes him considerably more than Cam does, who viewed him from the outside as a sidekick. 
So, yeah, the trickiest part is that when you're playing a character, you know what their motivation is, provided that you manage to get into the character. Like, I assume that's what you do when you're playing RPG. That's the point, to get mm-hmm. inside of the role. When you're facing either uh, an NPC or the character of uh, the other person, you have to infer what the other character is, what their mental state is. You know, the premise of Molassan, empathy, empathy and compassion. I think Ericsson never decrypted some of the yeah. quirks of Cam's character. Uh, well, essentially Shadowthron and who else would I say he didn't understand? I, I don't think he quite understood Dancer. Uh, not Dancer, uh, Dasim. I think he's gone on to say that, him. yeah, he never he never actually got Dasim because Dasim was very closed to him. He was very, you know, yeah. as you said, serious and sad and all of that. So he never actually got into him. Yeah. I think that's one of the things, because Cam actually fleshes out a lot of, of the kind of... I mean, he builds the character of Dasim, not just in in OST, but also in, like, in Path to Ascendancy. It's like, yeah, that's pretty much da- the same, Dasim. It's just that he, he's uh, he's letting go a bit more about the about it. But they, I have to say, they are both very good at keeping the, the, the characters very close to their chest. Um, and for Shadow Throne, it's like... <laughs> I think I love what Kevin would... replies when yeah. whenever Yeah, that's the next <laughs> thing, yeah. When people start talking about Kelamvet and ask I mean here when 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 I met with them it wasn't a conference in a in, it was a festival here of fantasy authors. And he was being interviewed by a French guy that seems to be a fan of the series. And he's like, Cam, what the fuck is the deal with Kelamvet? Like, is he insane? Or is he just a genius? And Cam was like, he, he gets a smile in his face, like he's having so much fun. And he's like, that's up to you to decide. I don't want to say which one was it, was it for me. Let's say a bit of both, but I'm not telling you which one it is. My favorite reply to this was uh, in the sub recently, when someone asked, like, Kelvin uh, might, be, might be nuts. So you're saying he might be nuts. I'm saying he might not be nuts. And that's worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's worse, yeah. But do you think the characters are consistent? Uh, I don't even cancel, think Kelvin uh, was consistent between sessions. Between <laughs> to be honest, I think he just because... got like I. I'm genuinely uh, believe at this point, uh, Esselmont just had two different characters, and he rolled the dice before going to sessions, and said, "I'm gonna blame like this this time." And that's how he kept his secret all along because it's just <laughs> it's he didn't know either beforehand. So, no, I think overall. I think Steve actually managed to capture Kelvin mm-hmm. pretty well in the sense that, you know, the tapping of the cane, the giggling, the the cracking wise, the manipulation, all of that is good, but you don't get to see who as much, the human Kelvin, but you always get to see the god who is powerful enough to not care what everyone else thinks of him. Whereas Wu still needs to build that empire like he built. It needs to, you know. He doesn't. He, I also believe that uh, Cam said that uh, Kelvin was an illusionist, so he had basically no hit points. No special powers to speak of, no combat prowess. He basically relied entirely on misdirection throughout the sessions to keep himself alive. Which is why Kelvin is like the way he is, because Cam had to play him like that to keep him alive. So, yes, I think uh, Steve captured Shadowthorn very well, but I don't think he could even try to capture Kelvin, if that makes sense. I really enjoyed um, the way Steve made Shadowthorn. I mean, I think one of the funniest scenes in the series, in Steve's series, 
This one made by Calumbert, by, by not Calumbert, by Shadows are not ready. So I think it's very on point. But whenever I read Cam write Calumbert, see, it somehow transforms everything. Like there is something that I find hard to describe mm -hmm. that comes out of the page whenever Esselmon is writing Calumbert or Shadow Throne. I don't know what it is. I see that Steve mimics that very well, but it's not the same. And I don't know what it is. It's like a certain tone in the things he says and how he does things. It's very... I mean, you notice it if you pay attention. So, yeah, I think they are cons as consistent as they can be. But, yeah, you, like, you notice the difference. The same goes with crop, like... Yeah. Particularly toward the house, like, uh, crop's effectiveness is... You can't deny it. The guy's very effective. He get, gets uh, everything done in the Registan. He's always aware of any challenge. Uh, he's always proactive. He also he always plays full to have the advantage of, you know... Um, of surprise but yeah when you go into the detail like the i think they're different i find crops in in, in ost a lot more goofy and in told the house for obvious reasons he, he comes off as more as, as more badass and awesome no i felt that uh, the way cam writes uh Kellenberg is much more funnier but you're saying that's not the same with crop because I thought the person who has the character sort of, you know, yeah. is a bit more reckless with the sense of humor. But I, I, that, that's what I felt because Kellenwood in Return um, is... In over. Return, and uh, it's not the last time you read about Kellenwood, let me tell you. So keep paying attention because he, he becomes very, like, it's really funny. Uh. But yeah, my favorite... <laughs> the, 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 no, it's just to, to tell you that the, the scene in, that I find super funny about Shadow Throne written by Steve is the one where he calls the nameless ones the nameless idiots. He's giving, he's giving a full-out rant to Ganos <laughs> <laughs> about the nameless idiots. My, um, some of my favorite bits are like the uh, Shadowthorn, what, what are advocates? You know, <laughs> like when Ho tells, tells Shadowthorn Menendor that like, I'm going to do horrible things to you worse than what I do to advocates. And Menendor like asks, what is a, what's an advocate? And like, yeah, it's just... Um, a leech on like politics and stuff, and I was considering having him executed. Why? Well, why didn't you? Well, the royal advocate said to be horrible. <laughs> and then in the crippled god about his mother, <laughs> the scenes with Kelvin's mother, mother are like, yes, uh. it's like uh, he's talking to dancer in the crippled god about like how his mother was never satisfied with him. <laughs> it's it's yeah, amazing. I, I, yeah, you know, it's, it's like uh, there were a lot of theories about that back in the day. I didn't People look very to deep into, into it. it. People, I mean, what do you think, Ash? Do you think that was just like a joke? Or do you think there's something hidden about that passage? I thought he was just making a joke. I, I don't know. Uh, Because I, I, let me tell you, I don't remember it exactly. I just know that there is part some... part of it is like, uh, Dancer is very dour then because he feels like he failed. And so I'm like, nah, you haven't. I mean, look at what my mother thought about me, all the things I achieved. Like, she still, still thought it wasn't enough. We have done enough. It's fine. It's gonna work out, and uh, but also it's just hilarious. I love it when he goes like, <laughs> and and then my mother is like, oh, so you're a god of a warren? Oh, let me guess, the broken one. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when when it was like, oh, you have a warren now? <laughs> ah, the broken one. I knew. Like it's always, it's always this tone of disappointment. But also one reason I like I told uh, I told Mora that I really like Warren in Stonewielder. One of the reasons is, even when he's joking, he's still like some cryptic things because 
throughout the entire passages of all of Warren's things, one of the main things he wants is his fish. And it's never entirely clear what the fish actually means, because there are literal fish that are, you know, consumed by the world. And there is a big fish that they find that's like three times his size, and he's like, my fish. And then he also talks to, Ka to Cash about, okay, I'm going to eventually catch the fish. What do I do with when I catch it? And that's when it clicks to Kiska that, hang on, he's not actually that crazy. He means something with this. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's that spark. Yeah. No, but then she has to stop and think, isn't it? Like, what am I going to do after finding Teshran? Like, no, about the advocates, can I just add one thing? Because I'm reading the novelas now. Uh, I think Steve had it for his tax collector the year he wrote uh, A Worms of <laughs> Player Mouth. Oh, God, there is a tax collector who goes through a lot of stuff. <laughs> and yeah, it, it's a fun book. So both of you haven't read the novelas, isn't it? I have not. Which one? Uh, the Korbal Brooch and Bok. Uh, no, How do you say that? No, no, I haven't read. No, I haven't read it. Okay, okay. I don't, I don't know because I live in France, so my, my, my reaction when I see that name is to say Beauchelin, but they oh. say it all Canadian English Beauchelin. It's just Beauchelin. I, I, I think of it as Bocalin or something. How do you say it, Lee? Yeah, I think it's supposed to be Bocalin. I always read it as Beauchelin. Oh. And I uh, was, yeah, I was very surprised to learn it's not actually it's just pronounced the K. K sounds natural to me. Same, it's the same with with uh, Felison. How do you say it? Felison. What? Okay. Felison. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now to touch back upon the, uh, the subject at hand, one thing that obviously differentiates Oeste and TTH is that TTH comes before, and all the destruction wrought upon the Rujasthan from all the hounds, we view the aftermath of Orbs of the Throne. Okay. So there's that. The other thing is the themes are obviously different. Duh. You know. Yeah, so, I found OST much lighter, generally yeah. speaking. Yeah, I mean, who's going to beat the Told the Hounds, you know, bleak tone? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I think, oh. you could you could make you could make an argument that Forge of Darkness is around that ballpark. Yeah, yeah, no, no, not Ericsson's books among <laughs> you know among the novels or the yeah. I think the, I think the novels generally are more upbeat. There are some dark points, but. A big part of them is overcoming that, you know, with Kiska, who is... Kiska could be depressed. Kiska could literally just give up. Say, okay, I'm done here. I failed. I'm going to go hang like Dasam did. I'm going to hang around the monastery or whatever. But she didn't. And um, that's... And the same well, is true as... for other characters, you'll say. Yeah, but as far as that goes, I will say that the, the most uh, depressing, depressing in, in atmosphere is uh, blood and bone again. Mm -hmm. I found some of these scenes, they're like really nihilistic. Uh, like uh... Yeah, it's bleak. Esselmont taps into that type of, of um, mindset, but it is not as oppressive as in Told the Hounds. And don't get me wrong. Everybody knows that Told the Hounds is my favorite book. Of... Yeah, you call yourself a supremacist? Yeah. yeah. I'm a Told the Hounds supremacist. And, uh, uh, but that said, yes, I think Esselmont, he taps into similar themes, but I appreciate that they're not as oppressive as Ericsson can make them. And I say it, this is not a criticism of either. It's just to have the ability to switch between one mode and the other. And I think that's really rich for the series as a whole. That's mm -hmm. something that I really appreciate about Esselman is that he's capable of, in terms of plot, to be more traditional in the structures of his novels. And in terms of themes, um, he still puts the themes in there, but they don't feel as oppressive. Even though the jungle is 
I will argue, a tool to explore one theme, the jungle feels oppressive. The broader theme doesn't feel that um, intense as in Ericsson, which I think it's, it's a good complement to the entire um, you know, universe. Besides, the theme is like in the title of that novel, like Blood and Bone. <laughs> I think that um, about themes being in the title is also true of Warps of the Throne, which... Spoiler, a big part of the themes is leadership and rulership. You'll see why, uh, Mora. Okay. Uh, the chapters are subdivided by orbs, scepter, and throne. The cards in the decks that correspond to orbs, scepter, and throne are all about rulership and different aspects of it and tools of rulership. And a lot of it deals with these sort of themes. And I think it's done very, I think it's done very well. I, I, orbs, scepter, throne was probably my favorite book in the novels. Probably, uh, even though I didn't quite get it at first, and then I watched the AP interview cam about it, and like, holy shit, oh, hang on, I missed like all of this book, and I still really liked it. Mm-hmm. And that's down, yeah, I think, I to obviously the, the compelling characters. Yes, go on. No, I'm just saying that. Yeah, like you know that unless you are, I don't know what your uh, academic background is, but usually, if you're going to say if you're going to do like very serious um, analysis. It's usually useful to decouple both readings, like make one reading to know where the plot and the characters are going, and then do more focused reading or something that you want to analyze. Because the truth is that uh, following the plot takes usually takes your attention from the finer points. Yeah, I'm saying it's normal. That don't feel bad because of you missed this yeah, or that yeah, because yeah. those guys are professionals. Yeah, like fucking APs. Damn. Well, be died me if I ever felt. Uh, disadvantaged because I was not as good as AP at analyzing things. <laughs> yeah, but you know, th- that's why me. this reread is making so much sense to me because it's, you know, it's possible to just sit back and, you know, let the book tell me its story rather than me rushing through it and trying to find out what happens next, which is how mm-hmm. I usually try to read books. So, I mean, I, I, sorry, I interrupted I'm one constantly, I'm constantly trying to decode things in the books. That's why I think so much about them. While I'm reading. No, no, no. I, I don't even think usually. I just keep turning pages so that, <laughs> you know, I'm done. I, I have to know, like, where it ends. It. It's a very superficial level of reading. So that's why rereading and slowing down and discussing m- means so much to me because, you know, it makes me think so much about the books. There's something I appreciate about the Reddit, that you have a lot of people that do like to discuss the finer points. Like... Yeah. Like, Back why Lassine is not Reddit. so bad and all that. You found. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But, like, I'll be honest, the first time I read the series, I didn't understand the... I didn't understand well the, the Ikari Warrens at all. And Me I was too. like... Yeah. I, I was like, yeah, I know it happened, but we don't know anything about it. And then comes in yeah. this... You know the folks that read the series when it was coming out back in the day. And says, yeah. of course it did. And she pays this text wall describing the exact scene where uh, Feather Witch, what's the name she has in that weird breath breath or something. state? In yeah. Breath. breath. Yeah. And Breath gives this lecture about about them. And I'm like, how did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, there is that scene in the prologue, that's a dream, which just says, okay, there's a like cave moth that watch a wanderer of green skin, naked with a sword. And everyone misses that. And then they are confused about the whole plot line for the rest of the book. And then you go back and read, how did I miss that? And if you miss that, the entire plot line is not going to make any sense at all. I think my friend had to like 
yeah i was i had to be told that you know this is a carrier and this is what is going on i think somewhere halfway around the book because i i didn't put it together on my own yeah i interrupted one of you i i knew what it was going on since the prologue what i didn't know was how much um, how much the ghosts were a part of icarium's psyche taking a shape or the actual souls of the original holders of the characters and for me that was most of the fun part doing the going through the plot line but what i didn't understand is that when breath does the explanation i'm like this doesn't this doesn't mean anything to me and then when i had finished the series and i went back and read that section it was like but it's very clear mm-hmm. i think levi were talking about uh, reading styles what's yours mm-hmm. Oh boy. Uh well the first time around I sped through the series and the novels in about 4 months. Then I got pretty deep into uni because I finished around mid-December and then I had to kind of stop because oh well, stop, I had to slow down and I read Order of Silver Throne like a month and a half. Oh. Whereas I read Gardens like 4 days. So, uh in general, a lot of the things that I retained were because I discussed them a lot because I went on the sub and I talked with a lot of people about it and then that helped me refine my take and then I went back to reread it and like oh oh that makes sense and then and that's how people uh, sometimes ask me how I ended up you know this lasina says it's from a completely unrelated event in a completely different series it's an asale nif knows what I'm talking about that I read that and like hang on oh oh and then I had read a post in in the sub a few days ago trashing certain like that that doesn't sound right you know like that doesn't click for me but i hadn't given it any thought before so a lot of my reading cells i'm going to read through and i'm going to try to read in whatever i can and then i'm going to discuss these fine print points you know the, the little details the thematic details with people and then try to formulate an opinion uh that doesn't always work out for me <laughs> that scene almost almost makes me cry i mean almost. it did make me cry so That's why we're oh, here God, now. What is this thing happening in Asil? <laughs> no, no, no. Please, uh, catch it. Yeah. That's a spoiler, one spoiler. Thing, uh, one, yes. No, no, it's not a spoiler. Oh, it's not important for the story. It's just, yeah. But one thing that I appreciate about the novels of the Malathan Empire taken together is that you can see the process of Esselmon refining the craft. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's not just that he improves. It's that you notice that he had that potential all along. but he's playing he's testing the waters what can work and what doesn't and i would argue to say that the last three books are very refined and from what i read in the this first book of path, uh, path to ascendancy is even more polished that's easier to notice in erickson because the guy is just i think erickson is just a, a he's a gifted writer he's operating in a in a form that is hard to really pin down So he's juggling with all these elements. For me, I I don't I don't think I understand what Erickson is fully playing with at the literary level. But with Esselon, it's much more clear to see the process of refinement that he's going through. And there 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 are scenes in Blood and Bone in Sale more than one because they is talking about one specific scene. But there are many scenes that hit very hard in a Sale. Like I don't know, people say whatever, but a Sale is a very strong finale to the series. Yeah. and there are many I, moments that hit really hard emotionally i think like, really the end hard. of the sale is like parallel to the ending of the crippled god as the only ending that could feasibly work it's, i agree 
it's very obviously there when you see it in other respects. It's like, oh yeah, that was obviously what it's building up to. But then it hits. And I remember very visib- vividly of me going, oh shit, when I read that. It's, it hits. It, it's the culmination of six books. And it's really good. It all, boils, it, all, it all boils down to one scene, I think, in Return, where you see something going out, going on, and there's one character that is witnessing that. Oh and I, I, for for the for the life of me, I couldn't figure out who that character witness it was. If you can figure out who that character is, you kind of expect what's going to happen eventually. Do you want to tell me the scene because you know I probably still remember written, and three books later I might not. If I tell you, you can put together what is that is going to happen. On but a reread, is there's it, so many hints. It's there's in, hints in Stonewilder. There's hints in Return. There's hints even in the Book of the Fallen. There's so many hints, and I completely missed it, because just like Saren, for instance, I was blind to what was right in front of me, and it's amazing. Yeah, okay, it's I... all the, this concept of re- retroactively loving something that you read and didn't find particularly striking. They are both very good at it. Okay, don't <laughs> confirm or deny, but are you guys talking about the A-word who have tapped into something which is, you know, uh, the war has gone somewhere, like what Usu finds out in this uh, scene with bars? Are you guys talking anything about that? By the way, on that scene with bars. Mm. Um, oh no, no. If you, you remember in Midnight Tides, Sandalaf touches his chest and he gets filled yeah. with sorrow. Yeah. I think it's just Esselmon going, I can do what I can one up you, bitch, and then just has to go into his chest. Yeah, that's that's what I think that scene was. Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> no, the scene has to do with the with the ritual of the Crimson Guard. No, he see, one... uh, there is some. Oh, yeah, it's that. Okay, I know what there's, he's talking about. Okay, there's there's one character that is witnessing at them, and they don't really notice that character. And the character is somewhat described, but I could never place who that was. I don't okay. remember. What if you do about, know who that character is, you can make all the connections. And oh no 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 no! That's in uh, that's in Blood and Bone. Not Return. That's in Blood and Bone. No, I'm talking about I'm I'm talking about Return very early into the series. He sketches Wait. what is going to happen. You know, just like Karsa stepping oh God, over that statue of the poor god. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it? Okay. I actually don't remember what scene he's talking about. Can you just there tell us? Many, I don't there mind are many, it. many scenes like that returned, by the way. There's so many scenes. So much foreshadowing flash- that I missed. It's a, it's a flashback, and they're going over the moment they're thinking about uh, taking the, the vow. Okay. You have Cass, uh, you have Skinner, you have some others, and they're about to make the vow. That is They're in, in a certain place. No. There is a scene like it's... that in Blood and Bone. When they take the vow, it is in Blood and Bone. And there is a person witnessing them, and that's the case. Yes, yes, but in Blood and Bone, I think they tell you who that character is. No, no it, I'm pretty sure. Well, he, they are described, <laughs> and then they are confirmed later. But I, I don't... In, in, I have to read back. I think, in Blood and Bone, <laughs> I think in Blood and Bone, they tell you who the character is. And you're like, wait a minute. But the problem is that in, in, in Blood and Bone, it's already very late. You, you have a lot of other clues already. I don't remember the scene at all. Okay. All right. I'm but in Return, it's like, gosh, you know, I don't know do. if you want to know who the character is. <laughs> I don't know. Is it like lot. a spoiler? Spoiler? Is it going to like spoil my reading? It, I, I, is, I don't is know. That a, is that a, it's not a spoiler, but if you figure out the, the identity, you can put them together and find out some things that are, are likely to happen. Okay, let me see. At the end of Blood and Bone, Maybe I'll ask you guys because oh, this is something to do with Assail, isn't it? Yes. It has to do with Later. the entire series, actually. But the story culminates in Assail. Okay. Yeah. In yeah. Assail is like, in Assail is like, oh, you didn't figure it out. 
let me spell it out for you. <laughs> okay. This is what's happening. <laughs> and uh, we and should I'm know like, that he spells it out and it still hits super hard. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. like, thanks, come. Thanks. I think the power of the moment is that he spells it out so, blat so blatantly. So, uh, not a bad thing at all. I think it was so well done because you, you always have to think that, the, I mean, writers have to write for a lot of right, uh, readers. If you make things too obscure, you have the issues that Ericsson had early in the series where people yeah, yeah. couldn't figure out some stuff and for him it was obvious. Yeah. On the other hand, it's like, if you do it too obvious, it's like, dude, I'm not a kid. It's, <laughs> it's clear. You, you... you know, some of those things is what we struggle in moderating the sub, you know? Because at what point do you say knowing traveler's identity before, I think, chapter 22 told the hounds? Because it's quite obvious, isn't it? Long back, you know that <laughs> this is Dasim. And so something which, uh, I don't know, as a, as a team, we, we somewhat struggle. Iskar Jarak's uh, identity. Because to me, it was obvious in uh, Bone Hunters, but I, I don't think it's spelled out until Reaper's Gale. No, uh, told the hounds. Told the hounds, okay. So, yeah. The funny thing is that even in Told the Hounds, you could argue that it isn't really a reveal because it's not called by name. Mm -hmm. It happens, I think, that the actual literal reveal happens, I think, in Dust of Dreams or, or the Cripple God itself. Oh. When they say, yeah, Iskar Jarak is Whiskey Jack. <laughs> okay. But yeah, you can figure it out earlier. What I'm going to tell you is that I didn't figure out that Traveler was Dasim in, uh, in House of Shame. I didn't even consider him because I don't. I think I didn't pick up that he was um, from Dalhon. It is mm -hmm. said that it is described somehow in House of Shades that Traveler was a Dalhon. I didn't put it together. I, I mm -hmm. don't know why. So I had to wait until <laughs> until Cotillion in, in Tola Hounds. It was all but said and like... He was like one of the first to join the family, and at first it was just him, Dancer, and Kellen. But I, just, I, I was completely yes. oblivious. Completely. Yes, but for yeah, yeah, but for me, that trio was never. I mean, that's not how I thought about the family. I didn't think that it yeah. was them three first, and then the others. For me, that those three in particular. I mean, for me, it was Kellen, but first, and then the others at the same time. I didn't know the three of them were together first and then the others came so i was thinking about some nappans and maybe some mothers of the of the old, of the old family but not dasim in particular but yeah in hindsight it was obvious actually some of these things i think my friend just told me straight up because <laughs> i don't know he got tired of watching me struggle probably <laughs> like keeper is uh, urko and all i think he just straight up told me yeah, the one of Keeper for me was super obvious. Yeah, no, it was not for me. I mean, I didn't even guess that those uh, those faces in the rocks were uh, uh, Tilanimas. I, I don't think I got that either. So I think by then my friend knew that I better help this one. The one with Keeper is that I remember very specifically when someone says like, no, because um, Orca crossed could punch down a house yeah, with his fist. Yeah. And then he comes and bring down, brings down the house called... Carsa Orlon with his fist. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's too obvious. No, how the chains, I think book one is like, you know, one, one of my favorites. Uh, I don't want to sound mean, but I, I mean, yeah. I enjoy it, but I hated Carsa power. Hmm. And even up to this day, it's not that I, I enjoy the character. I hate the person. No. Like if I could kill one character in Malasan that has survived so far, <laughs> it will be Carsa. 
I think you know who my answer would be. Yeah, the savior <laughs> of the realm. Ren? Oh, shut the fuck <laughs> up. The savior, <laughs> the savior of the realm. <laughs> the young and merciful. I mean, so, uh, since we brought him up, I have a few things to say. Is that one thing, obviously, Malik in Eslamon's books is very, very different than Ericsson's books. Yeah, but it's also it's also different because I think power transforms people in one way or one, another. One thing one thing I told Mora in our last episode, I think it was somewhere, is that I think, I'm convinced, that Malik the Gistal would drive the Empire to the ground in two years. I'm convinced of that. Malik the Merciful yeah. is the best thing to happen to the Empire. Yeah. So what is the difference? The difference is that somewhere in the Grimson Guard, Mal dump, dumps him into the ocean and says, okay, now I'm free of you, go fuck yourself. And um, Malik, rather than saying, you know what, screw this, I'm going to go kill Mal or whatever, thinks about this and says, I should be patient, I should think about this, I should do other things. And uh, one thing I've took to noticing in the free read is uh, in the Bone Hunters, in that scene with uh, the Parley, Corballo asks Tavor what the deal with the parish is, and Tavor has fallen to the barbarians. And Kalam thinks, yeah, barbarians sailing the best damned ships in the whole ocean. And then in Stonewielder, there's Captain Peles, who is a captain in the Greyhelms in, per- in Parish. And so from literal nobodies considered to be barbarians among the Imperial High Command comes a captain in the Mazar military that's sworn to a Parish order because Tavor brought them up. Similarly, yeah. he needs the advice of one Tavor Perrin about... Uh, and understanding of motivations and stops persecuting the Wiccans because that's going to bring his ember down and so on and so forth. But so I... as much as I hate the guy, Estelon writes him really well in the regard that he changes, his change is believable and it's not so jarring as to say, oh, this guy is now emperor 10 years later and the ember is great. I also like that they haven't touched uh, Malik directly after he becomes emperor. Yes, 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 that is great. That's very good. So you see what he's kind of doing. You see his efficiency. <laughs> And we don't you know. I still don't know why. But you see that he's willing to put uh, yes. uh, to put uh, the his personal grudges on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Perhaps forget them altogether, just for uh, efficiency's sake. So that's fine. Which is, I um, dare say, another thing you learn from someone else, namely Surly. <laughs> the the uh, man learns from his enemies <laughs> a lot, and it's annoying because I want him when to fail. Think but... of... God damn when it. you think about it, the the entire notion of never forget about the barbarians, it's a quote from Kalamvet. So yeah, Malik clearly knows his empire history, and he put his puts, he puts that into practice clearly. So yeah, the guy is very effective. It is, but I yeah. for some reason I hate Carson more than that. <laughs> Because like it, it genuinely feels like Carson does not learn, and what he learns, he doesn't you know. He learns, evidently. He's very learned and uh, very philosophical by the end of the series. But it still feels like the lessons he took... No. No. I, um, in a group chat with Samora, I actually delivered my rant about Carson. Oh, God. Yeah. And why I think he's... There's a line in The Crippled God when he picks up Munug and takes him to the temple and whatnot about how... To die in someone's arms is the most forgiving thing in the world, and every savage barbarian in the world ever knows this. Now, I don't think I need to remind you that Carson's village, the Templar, left their children to die as a sacrifice to the face of the rock when they became the found. 
now I'm not saying that's bollocks, but I'm I'm you very ready say, to call you bollocks. You did call it bollocks, so <laughs> I did call it bollocks, and I'm gonna do it again. No, see, there is a separation between something you do uh, in the name of religion, where you sacrifice deformed babies because this is what they believe, and this is what you know. It's part of what Ikarium has taught them to what do you call that to make their blood less cloudy or something. Yeah, make it and there is a difference yeah. between people actually dying either through natural causes or unnatural causes or whatever like actual mm-hmm. dying people the way you treat them it is all uh, i don't know it is extremely relevant to what we see today isn't it there is a concept called good death which is something which palliative care deals with where you yes. try to make sure that uh, all avoidable distress can be avoided for the patient right and that includes having people nearby and making sure that family is present and all those things but i don't know i love the way that erickson through karsa goes one step further and says that it's not enough to just have people standing around you in a sterile room isn't it having them in your arms as they pass away is something different and I, I, it's i don't know it's it is uh, it was extremely powerful for me to read what munug and that that karsa scene with munug so it would what have been he means for me if he wasn't a hypocrite That scene oh made me. God. That scene made me cry like a baby. It did. But it I, is a very powerful scene. Sign up for it. I have to agree with you, Cash Dad. Um, you say they are hypocrites from our point of view, and they are from our point of view. But from their point of view, it's like, if you will, take the notion that um, reality is not something that we access directly. We access reality through a system of beliefs. So when they leave one of their kids. to die as sacrifices they the the world view that they have is that they are really letting those kids to die they are allowing for the gods to recover them something like that like the reality they live in is very different from the reality we live in mm-hmm. very true. so it's not hypocritical in that sense yeah no, i agree but but yeah. still my issue with carsa is that his personality profile is the same as a bully that bothers you in high school or in that sports club you go to or on the internet whenever you just say something it's like that's the same profile i get from carson there is just one character that i will say that i hate more that is still alive if you can say that's alive in in malasan which is the uh, the errand oh yeah <laughs> yeah today i, I think moras uh, hate all the people that i like <laughs> you like the errand Why? I mean, I don't have a problem with him yet because I'm still in Midnight Tides, uh, the reread. So, well, look, yeah, people hate Olar Ethel. I don't know why. I find her okay. <laughs> oh God! Some oh, people what? hate. Some people hate Kilmanderos. I don't know. I love that character. I love her too. Yeah, yeah, that we are agreed. Uh, <laughs> some people hate who else? Ah, uh, uh, yeah, some people misguided as they are hate the savior of the realm. Nah, uh, for fuck. The guy's I... a douchebag, but. <laughs> But he's I'm going to live with <laughs> <laughs> But I mean I can't I cannot redeem the the errand. So you know how there's an adage in Malazan that whenever something goes bad a dragon is probably behind it. Yeah. Well, that's not true. The errand is probably behind it. Everything yeah. that went world uh, went wrong in Everything the world. That, yeah. He, that fucker behind it somehow. Yeah. And just I uh, like just You know, just to fuck with people and just to keep uh, relevance. It's not for anything like transcendental. It's just like, oh, look, 
I can screw these people up. Let me do it. Yes. Oh, look, if I did do this, I would be more influential. Let me do it. I, I don't know why you need to hate on someone for being that way. Because it's fun. It's really fun. <laughs> Hating on fantasy characters is really fun. I can I can confirm this. I can indeed confirm this. <laughs> do you know how fun it is to go into these rants about fantasy <laughs> stuff like hating on something? Don't you, like I still remember vividly that in chapter five of my essay I referred to Malik as that guy because I didn't want to name him. <laughs> it was hilarious. I loved every second of it. Do I hate okay, anyone as much as phone. that? Lee might know. Do I hate anyone as much as that? I'm not sure. Uh, he really hated Leo, man. Like, really. Yeah, but yeah, I, I came around. So. Um, okay. Is, is that power? So, so the writer of Esselman is so powerful that he switched from the never Leo man to the always Leo yeah, man camp? Yeah, because I, in my mind, this is a dude who betrayed Korab. You know, awesome guy Korab. And I will not, please do not trash Korab, both of you. So <laughs> from there, you know, it, he sort of felt sympathetic by uh, Stone Wielder. I didn't want to read the Jewel scenes, but you know, at the end it was all it was fine. Yeah. I don't hate Koram. Koram this is guy does. The fine. other guy does. Yeah. I don't really? hate him. Never did I say that I hate Korab. I just said that we shouldn't hate Leoman because he betrayed Korab when Korab very I'm, obviously yeah. is too hmm. dumb for his own good. See, the not hating is coming through. <laughs> I, I find him funny. I think he's very cool. I think what he did with filler is great. I think his and is, is not hilarious. It's very poetic and cool. But he's also dumb as a break. <laughs> Look, I have to say for for Leo, man, he did offer. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, an out. Yeah. He did offer an out. It was like, look, Cora, all this is bullshit. I don't believe any of this bullshit. Yes, come with me. Save yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he at, at <laughs> least he's not that. That much of an asshole. Well, yeah. Okay. You agree when Nif says it, but when I said it, I'm just an I'm just an asshole that but hates Korra. You don't put it in such nice words, do you, Lee? I I did. <laughs> he's put a dunce. Nice he's way. an ass, and oh god, well, I, I don't know what did. are you talking. Okay, fine. I did say how could you do this? You were the chosen one or something about Korra, but no, but you know. see, I like Korra because regardless of his IQ and all that, is because he helps Fiddler at the end. So even he comes. Oh, he yeah. overcomes his yeah. prejudice against all Malazans and, you know, helps Twidlet. So he's number one in my book. That's something that most people never manage to do in real life. And I don't know if most people, but a lot of people. Like, mm. that's one of the hardest things. Like, there is this phrase, this um, quote, I don't know from where. It's easier to trick someone than to convince them that they have been tricked. Mm -hmm. Most people that buy into these radical ideologies or uh, propaganda, stuff like that, have it, also, have it almost impossible to de disconnect from them. And Korab doing it, it, it was like, oh, this guy is great. He ultimately saw that, no, Malassans don't get inaugurated as yeah. soldiers by eating babies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which in hindsight is like the most hilarious. <laughs> I think it comes up somewhere else in Stone Wheeler too, isn't it? The sea folk, I think, assume that people eat babies or somewhere it came up again. I think so. I don't remember the the, the quoting. Do you do you remember Lee? I uh, I know that the seafolk get all the flack from people about their because they also worship old gods that are not the lady, and so 
they get demonized. There is a very, very much of that uh, religious intolerance in the lady, which leads to the sort of propaganda myth spreading, which is, I think, great theme handling. I don't remember if it was a seafolk that was supposed to be eating babies, but... Uh, yeah, yeah so there was something, I, I'm sorry. I could I'm... believe it. <laughs> <laughs> no, she thinks that... So now let me... Yeah, sorry, go on. Let me ask you this, to both of you. Do you think the lady is A, a fragment of the crippled god, or B, an old deity that found a fragment of the crippled god and used its power? Do you want to go Lee, shall I? Uh, I think Morris said B, the first time yeah. around. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, I, I still think, think a, if the option is available, I'm taking B. Sorry, go, go on. Go I on think B. it's A because of a future book. Oh. So I'm cheating. <laughs> I know no, which No, because as far as I'm concerned, if the option is available, then it's B. Lee told me that it has to be the uh, the crippled god, so I just left it at it. I asked him that, is this some old deity who has, you know, taken up the powers and all that? And he said no. So I mean, they very pieces of them. They carry pieces of them like yeah but it could be it's not impossible yeah but the thing is that uh, we have been told for all for a long time that the, the gods use the power of the crippled god for their use that that's why they shame him to siphon their power and benefit from it so give me an example of one god that does that was it Shit. yeah that's true i thought it was just something you know like uh, not something obvious like tapping into the crippled god's blood and taking his power and all but Maybe it just added to the power of the entire world and only gods could access it. I'm not sure if there was something specific yeah. for that. That's a possibility, but the other possibility is, for example, do you see the, the Forkroll trying to do something using the, the heart? And then one possible option is, yeah, the lady being an older god, siphoning that power for herself and maybe maybe also some other gods trying to do the same. But like the, the lady, because there's something else, like... What we see in both the Book of the Fallen and in the novels is the Pantheon as a specific group of people see it. It's like a model of reality, not reality itself. Throughout the series, we see there is a lot of gods that are not in the Pantheon, but they are still gods. People still see them, and it makes more sense that they are the ones siphoning the power from the crippled god. Incidentally, they do not participate in the Shainins. It's only the big ones. Well, you could say Drishna. Is doing that, but I'm not sure Trishna is actually a goddess. I mean, I don't even think Trishna is siphoning necessarily the people got power. I think it's a Temurlan that she uses and why she's powerful. And the people got an acquaintance rather than a fool. Uh, <laughs> I would like to think that she's the first true consort, perhaps N not because she not because she allied with Kaminsa, but because you know thematically people get into roles even if they don't want to. So I think Trisha just fulfilled the role of consort early on, and then uh, oh god, I always forget which is which. Then Solio, no Polio. Polio is the god of pestilence. So yeah, Polio. Yeah, because Solio is from Shadow, also yeah. With S is healing, with P is poison. <laughs> oh god, certainly. <laughs> and then the most badass redhead in the universe takes the role. And gets the deeds done. Yeah. Why would you say Drijna is not a goddess? Like, isn't it sort of her, her main thing that she has become a goddess? Uh, yeah. I don't know why I don't think of her as a goddess. I mean, she has worshippers and all that. But I always saw her more like an ascendant than a fully fleshed god. I don't know why. But yeah, she mm -hmm. should be a goddess. She has worshippers. Power, yeah. She should be. Right. Have we run out of things to say? I don't think we have, but I think... <laughs> 
<laughs> is there anything else we are forgetting about all this? Oh, so there, there, there's something I for, almost forgot to tell that I have to say here. Yeah. I told that to Cameron, and he was really happy to hear this. When I finished um, Return of the Crimson Guard, I couldn't stand Kyle. I oh. found him boring, stupid, like the character I wouldn't want to read more about. So I delayed my reading of Stonewielder because I knew a Stonewielder was going to be with him, as opposed to Our Scepter Shroud, which was a detour. So I wanted to get to Our Scepter Shroud because Darugistan, that's my favorite setting. Um, I mean, Yenabag is my favorite setting. Crop and all that, oh, a lot of fun. But I didn't want to read more about Kyle. By the end of a sale, Kyle, I can safely say, is one of my most enjoyed characters of the entire series. I really enjoyed reading the last phase of him, starting in Stone Wilder. Like, he grows up and, like, he becomes someone like you. It's You enjoy reading about him. Besides, they they made his name more cool. I don't know why the Americans hate that his name <laughs> Kyle. I don't know what's the issue with Kyle. Yeah. To me, Kyle, Ben, this is just the same. John, Jamie. Jack, etc. Jack, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, all those but names yeah. are exotic to me, so... I mean, you have like the cool names like Dorian and stuff. And then you have Kyle and like, okay, what's the difference? It's a fantasy world. Uh, which reminds me, by the way, that's a complete detour. There was a post that uh, about, uh, fuck me, uh, Leandris and Casa. And, oh, oh, uh, I, really, I, really I was waiting. I, I was waiting. I, 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 really I am here. This lady is calling me out because I don't know a damn thing of Greek. And I'm like, where is Lowly? Where is Lowly? Is it Lowly? Where is... Yeah. Where is Slowly to so, help me here? Where is he? So, I need help here. <laughs> so, what I wanted to say is that you have, for instance, Ult, that's a Multor. Ultor means Avenger in Latin. Uh, yes, you have Corvola Dom, who is named after a Roman general. Are all of these people Roman or Latin? No, because the Book of the Fallen is a fucking translation in the first place. It doesn't matter if the word sounds Greek or not. Because that's not the point. Dasim isn't based on some Latin character because his name means Avenger, which I guess I guess he could be based on Mars, who had the surname Uldor. But uh, naming your character after the God of War is very ambitious. My point is the name itself and how it's pronounced and written in real world language does not matter because the book itself is written by a character in the world in another. It's like. Are you going to draw conclusions on Lord of the Rings based on what the fuck the characters' names mean? No, because it's explicit in the text. It's a translation from like a book that the Hobbits wrote or whatever. Hobbits? Yes. What I yes. like about all this, what I like about all this is that when I switch the burden of proof and go like, okay, but I did the best I could with this information. Can you make a counter proposal? Everybody's like, oh no, I just, I'm just saying that I don't like this detail about what you said. I don't have anything better to propose. And I'm like, and so? Okay. So I think it doesn't... Well, for one, I think Casa sounds much more... I think Casa was even the name of one of Caesar's assassins, for instance. Casa sounds much more Latin to me. Again, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the, the, the point is... No, it doesn't. These must it doesn't, sound Greek or Latin. The point is they allude to our world. I'm letting you speak now. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's... Uh, the, the implication is that they... It's not that they precisely come from our world. But I think there is some meaning being conveyed choosing those names. Yes. When you when you step, you give one step back and say, well, why would the author 
name this character some name, like for example, Cotillion. In the Malassan universe, there is no such thing as a Cotillion. Cotillion <laughs> yeah. is a random word from a random guy that just took that name and is worshipped under that name. If you happen to be American or if you are very old-fashioned here in France, you know that a cotillion is a dance. Yeah. So while in-universe it doesn't mean anything, the author is talking with the reader and telling him, like, notch, notch, cotillion is a dance. Dancer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm sure if AP listened to this, he will tell me the name of that term. It might be paradiegetic information, but I'm not sure. Yeah, we... <laughs> We've already gone over in our Lorne episode with Mora about why names matter in Malazan. You know, sorry, Lorne, Tillian, all of those. And yes, okay, obviously, Leandris sounds close enough, but not quite. For that matter, Anomander, if you add a couple extra letters, can be sort of a transliteration of lawless man in Greek. Does that mean Anomander is Greek? No. Doesn't matter. That's not the point. It's a translation, and it's alluding to some information extraneously out of the text to show something. He could have just named them like some... He could have called the followers of the Gribble God fucking Klingon or whatever, in whatever the Klingon tongue is, because he likes Star Trek. And it would still not matter because it's a translation of the book regardless, so they're not actually meant to be Klingon coming to our world, I don't know, whatever Klingon do. So to approach this like this, like, oh, they don't actually sound Greek. Nobody cares, for fuck's sake. I didn't type anything, but uh, I, I, I just want you to know that I actually I know I you, think these things. <laughs> I, I know you didn't type anything, but I mean, what am I going to do? I have to acknowledge because I don't know anything about Greek. I only use Greek numerals with Greek letters in math. When I'm doing some development and I ran out of Latin uh, letters, I start bringing in the, the Greeks. But yeah, it was cool to learn that. And I think part of I'm Nick's response was that uh, even Ericsson is not exactly Greek and he might not be familiar with the Greek way of naming. I, look, I don't, I don't, I don't want to bash the guy, but he's very specific. <laughs> I only speak English. I can understand Swedish, but I don't speak anything other than English. So take yeah. it with a grain of salt. He himself says, do you think he's going to go through a Greek text like, okay, how do I pronounce this? How do I say this? How do the diminutives work here? Like, he doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I don't that's think a, he does. If he's, that's a fair point. If he's yeah. listening to this and he's saying that, yes, he does, he's free to contact me. He knows how to contact me. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine Ericsson. Well, Nip, hold on. Yes, I did. <laughs> Oh, would that be fun? It would. Right. So anyhow, yeah. Uh, that is my uh, my discourse on why these names don't actually matter, if they're weak or not. So <laughs> I think <laughs> that about I found that very our, funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, are we out of things to talk? For now, we could probably, probably come up with more stuff, but it's almost two hours. <laughs> yeah. So we so. should probably make them the last. Uh, the closing statements, because I mean, I'm sure that if we, we can talk about more stuff. We can, yeah, we can probably. Okay, can I just ask you guys uh, one thing? Like uh, when you say it hits you hard emotionally and it made you cry and all that, do you guys actually mean like cry, cry? Because I do. I, <laughs> I, I actually cry. Yeah. What would you tell us? For me, crying is closing the book and <laughs> tearing, having tears in my eyes. Ah, okay. That's what I mean by crying. Yeah. 
But when I say cry like a baby, it means that I make sounds, <laughs> like <laughs> including the tears and all that. Okay. Uh, the like, first round, yeah. in the Book of the Fallen, I only teared up when Cat and Stormy died. That, that hit me hard. Mm-hmm. The second time around, I, I legit went to the shower and bawled like for 10 minutes on the end of Death House Gates. That fucked me. So mm-hmm. it depends. The second time around, though, it hits me harder because I know what's going on. And I don't have to focus on the plot and everything because I need to keep reading. The Crippled God, like, the first time around, last chapter destroyed me. I, I was in tears from when Guest died and Stormy died at the end up to and including the epilogues. That entire thing was, spread, was spent teary-eyed. Yeah, yeah, because this uh, is something I'm always curious when people say it made me cry and all that, so. And that aforementioned scene in a sale because it was really late and it was like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. And I just read it like, I went, oh shit, ah, ah. And then, oh yeah. god, you are hyping that book too, too much. much, both of you. So you'll know the scene when it happens. You have to take a sale with a grain of salt because a lot of folks miss the point of the mm-hmm. critic of history that both authors are doing. And they expect to see in a sale exactly what an under-informed or unreliable character says is going to happen. Okay. If a I character says, a look, we have yeah. to do this because this is the... You check their biases. Are, there, are they lying? Are they uninformed? What's going on? Can we really trust in what they're saying? Do they have motives to lie or motives to be ignorant of, of this or that? Always mm-hmm. do that. Because the framing of a sale is in terms of something that happens in memories of ice. And no. if your expectations is that everything that the memories of ice promise happens in a sale, it will be frustrating. Okay, what actually pisses me off about the criticism is when Lana's dog meets Envy, she is coming back to the first to the gathering to say that they have lost, that the war is over, and they have died, and they have lost. There shouldn't be a war going on. Because the whoever is on a sale, the humans in this case, won. The Eight human months tyrant. of battle, 23,000 fucking whatever Imas have died. I'm the sole survivor from my clan coming back to Silver Fox to say that we lost. Why are you expecting to see a war going on there? Why? Because yeah. I think and it also, comes up again in Stone We Live and it's sort of implied that a war is still going on. That's the impression I have even now. A few characters bring it up. Cotillion brings it up, and I think Bone Hunters. When he, ah, oh, uh, yeah, but the, yeah, but I the problem think... is that you don't know you don't know if there's war going on or or if a sale is just overall shitty, dangerous, yeah. and always like one that. thing. One thing I noticed about a sale is it doesn't have epigraphs. The book doesn't have an epigraph, unlike any other book in the series. And one very cynical view I've seen a lot is that Cam just got lazy. You know, he got lazy. I don't know. The real reason, I think, is if you read Blood and Bone, a lot of... Uh, Let's take Stone Wheeler. Stone Wheeler has sayings. Most of them are from Corelli sages and librarians and stuff that have collected sayings over time. And they're very small. They're like one or two sentences. They're not historical. They're like that line about they were enlightened. You know, they, we brought the faith of the lady. With the story. Yeah, yeah. Blood and Bone, a lot of Blood and Bone is journals from di- diaries from sailors and explorers that have landed on Jakuruku and not actual Jakuruku peoples. A sail, for the most part, relies on oral tradition. There is no poet, well, there is no person from a sail that, I guess there is one, so it doesn't count, but 
the, most of a sale doesn't have any written tradition or any epigraphs for you to put up, and no explorer that went to a sale came back alive. So who is going to write yeah. the epigraphs? Nobody. <laughs> that's why there's no epigraphs in the sale. Yeah, and so nice you really have to take the... Uh, and the prologue of a sale also sets this up a lot, because they, what Nif mentioned earlier about the, how the book is framed and what goes on comes back, dates back to Memories of Ice, it kind of shows you that this is not the kind of story you're, going, you're expecting to read, and you should go on with altered expectations. If you're expecting to see battle between the mass and dragon about like the fate of the world and stuff, you're gonna be disappointed. That's not what happens. That's not the point. Yeah, uh, but there is something else about any battle between the dragon and the Imas, and it's really very obvious. If any important group of dragon came together to fight the Imas, there will be no Imas. Like dragons are, <laughs> they're objectively the superior group. They are calm, doing their own thing. They make some genetic experiments here and there. Yeah, that's there are some ethic violations there. But for the most part, they're the most powerful. Like, just imagine Gothos, Hood, the 14. Yeah. Like, just put them all together. And, and, and they say went that, to fight death, and they won. Yeah. Imagine them so, like, fighting the, the eye mass. Uh, give me a break. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jagged supremacist also. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I have evidence to prove it. It's just like, uh, teachers don't care. Yeah. So in short, to appreciate the stories that Ethelmo is trying to tell in the novels, one must not approach them as a supplement to the book of Fallen because they're not. One must yeah. not approach them with preconceived notions of, oh, this is going to happen because that's not, it's not going to happen. I mean, he pretty much, as I said earlier, there's foreshadowing. There's so much foreshadowing in the book that it's what's going to happen. It's pretty much laid out in front of you. Just don't see it. But it's not the book is telling you what story is going to tell you deliberately avoiding it because you don't want to read that story is going to dig away from your enjoyment but it's not the book's fault that's, that's why i refuse the framing of the book of the fallen being the main ten because the moment you say the book of the fallen is the main ten it sets the narrative of everything else if eselon is just uh, following what happened in the book of the fallen you deny eselon's work something they develop themselves so, um, the Book of the Fallen is not about Malas, it's not about the Malassan Empire, it's about the release of the Cripple God. Uh, the novels of the Malassan Empire, among other things, is about the Malassan mainland and about this group, the Crimson Guard, and other things. It's like, if you said, if you accept that the Book of the Fallen is the main ten, then you're going to be disappointed because the novels are not trying to fill things, fill spaces. It does it incidentally, but they, it is its own thing. Should should we wind up here? Until <laughs> next time, here. when Mora, Mora finishes a sale, which is probably... <laughs> so, awesome. uh, yeah, no, I think um, I think we're done here. So. Well, folks, it's been, it's been really fun. Thanks for inviting me. Now, thank you so much for coming, Nif. I, <laughs> I know you, you are our first guest. I'm sure you know that. I so, thank don't know. I didn't know it was the first one. Yeah, yeah. But that's cool. Maybe we should, you know, make something, make some things work, and get you a couple more uh, people to interview here. Uh, hopefully, let let's see how this one. You know, I mean, I, I was actually, I, I, I didn't know that this would go so swimmingly well. So yeah, I, yeah, I think you've given I'm... us some confidence there. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming, Nif. Seriously. And thanks for having me. It's been a delight. Thank you, Lee, for. Thank you, Mora, and uh, 
Yeah. So take care. Bye. Bye. Good night.